Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everyone. It's October the 11th. 2021. It's early afternoon in San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. Uh, this afternoon, we're talking about a subject that needs to be talked about, although it's not always fun. Um, sexual criminality, m male criminality, uh, and why it isn't always dealt with properly under the law. The headlines are full of it today. Um, there's a terrible piece in the New York Times, terrible in the sense it's a good piece, but terrible terrible uh, revelations about a, a doctor, a man called Ricardo Cruciani, who, who worked for years, who sexually abused many of his patients, and who continued to work. I mean, it's one thing to be a sexual criminal. It's quite another to just get away with it continually. Now he's, uh, now he's in court, but this thing was going on uh, for years. Meanwhile, there's a report by uh, Harvey Weinstein's PA that uh, abusers uh, still have uh, abusers like Weinstein of himself, of course, the quintessential abuser, still have the legal power to silence victims. That's very troubling. Uh, and then, of course, we have uh, the dreadful headlines about Prince Andrew, uh, the British police, apparently. This is news in today. The British police dropped their investigation into Prince Andrew over sexual abuse claims, according to the Washington Post. Surprise, surprise. I don't think anyone is, of course, surprised. Here we have an image of uh, the young woman, Virginia Giffrey, who accused Prince Andrew of uh, sexual abuse. Um, and here we have, of course, from the Jerusalem Post of all publications, a, a twin photo of uh, Prince Andrew within his then friend uh, Jeffrey Epstein, one of the major sexual criminals of, uh, of history, probably. Um, so, so what's going on here? It's all, of course, a question of credibility. Men are getting away with it because women are not being believed. And that's the subject of our show today. There's a really important new book out uh, by a woman called Deborah uh, Turkheimer, professor, very distinguished professor of law. Uh, her new book is called Credible, Why... We Doubt Accusers and Protect Abusers. Deborah is joining me from her home in Evanston, Illinois. Uh, Deborah, are you uh, as depressed by the news today as I am, or is this just another day in the history of male sexual criminality? Thanks for having me on the show and for amplifying this conversation. This was a, a, quite a day in the news, and yet... Sadly and maddeningly, uh, not aberrational. It, you know, this is uh, making the headlines more and more, but it's been happening since forever. And we're just now starting to realize, I think, the depths uh, of the problem and the extent to which people will go to protect abusers. So, uh, is it depressing? I'd like to say that this is coming to light and that's what's ultimately going to help us to move forward and do better. And in that respect, I think it's galvanizing. Let's say that. So Deborah, the subtitle of, of, of the book, Credible, is Why We Doubt Accusers and Protect Abusers. Why do 
we doubt accusers, female accusers, of course. When women come forward and make allegations of abuse, really what they're asking is for the status quo to be disrupted in some meaningful way. And the powerful, but really all of us, have a deep investment in maintaining those structures and those relationships and those arrangements. And we are really attracted to sort of preserving the familiar, preserving the status quo. Again, especially those who benefit most from it, but really all of us, we, we are all shaped by a cluster of forces, culture and law primarily, that, that lead us to want to do nothing when someone comes forward. And so we distrust, we blame, we disregard. Is this true? No, uh, I, I take your point, but is this true in all criminal accusations, or only when it comes to male crimes on sexual male crimes on women? Yeah, no, I think that this is very much wrapped up in male sexual entitlement and in patriarchal structures, in um, a, a gender imbalance that has, you know, that has defined patriarchy for centuries. And so that's where I think the the investment in the status quo is most powerful. What about men like myself who at least claim to be horrified, shocked, and not guilty of any sexual crimes? What can we do? Well, and I really want to stress that the, the book is written from the assumption that most people, men and women, want to do right when someone comes forward, that this isn't about unnecessary cruelty. It's not about self-identifying as, as people who protect abusers, but unwittingly, we really are uh, sort of relying on a set of misconceptions about abuse and abusers and victims. And we're doing the best we can do, but we need to make ourselves more aware of these hidden biases, the myths that we resort to, and I think only by confronting head on these hidden forces are we going to have a prayer of surmounting them. You introduce this term gaslighting as one of the one of the techniques that I guess men or certainly certain kind of men and, and, and their legal advisors use to convince women that there was no crime. What is gaslighting and why is it so important in terms of uh, trying to fix this problem, Deborah. Yeah, it's it's really about making someone believe that their reality is not, in fact, reality. That they are um, confused about their own experience, and we see that often, particularly in cases of abuse, where women come forward and they're told it didn't really happen the way you say it happened, you must be mistaken. And, you know, sometimes there's alcohol involved and then it becomes that much easier to persuade someone that she might have it wrong. But even when there's not, I think we're so prone to doubting ourselves. And I say we, I mean women, are so prone to doubting ourselves that it becomes that much easier to, uh, to, to, make us question ourselves and to make us wonder, did I really experience this? I heard this over and over again from women I spoke to for the book um, who, you know, described this process of looking back and, and kind of wondering, second guessing, did it really happen like that? Would, I'm imagining or picturing one conversation in particular where the survivor told me, 
I just couldn't imagine that a trusted doctor would do this to me. I just couldn't imagine that he would. And so I just proceeded as if it didn't happen. And that kind of collective gaslighting that we all play a part of, I think is something that we need to address if we're going to do better. Uh, I saw a headline uh, uh, from a few weeks ago, actually, I think it's from a few months ago about uh, Chanel Miller, who was the the woman in the Brock Turner case, um, refusing to be reduced to just uh, Turner's assault victim. Mm-hmm. Um, is that what you would recommend? I mean, how how do women or how should women respond to gaslighting and the culture surrounding gaslighting? I would say that it's not, it shouldn't, the onus should not be on the survivor um, to react in one way or another. I think that there are so many different ways to cope with trauma and to um, move forward in a you know process of healing. What I want to see is change in the culture that leads to this kind of gaslighting and then that internalization of doubt, that self-doubt. And I think that that's what all of us can work on rather than suggest that any one way of, of coping is the right way. We are, of course, living in the age of um, Me Too, uh, which was triggered by the behavior, the criminal, the criminal behavior of Harvey Weinstein. Um, you make Rose McGowan one of the heroines of your book. W- what's the big deal about Rose McGowan? Well, I tell the story of Rose McGowan, or I should say I retell the story that she tells herself in her memoir, which she calls Brave. And I think that the story of Rose McGowan illustrates very well what happens when women come forward and they come up against a powerful establishment. They come up against a man who is protected by a system and just choose up victims who dare to speak their truth. So Rose McGowan was silent for a long time about what had happened to her, as most victims, I should say, are silent. And it's because they are very aware of what often happens when they come forward with their accusations. It's a horrible experience for most survivors. And so the alternative, which is silence, can seem more attractive. When Rose McGowan did finally come forward, Harvey Weinstein and his team went after her with with full force and she suffered consequences. And so I think it sort of nicely illustrates the the mechanisms of dismissal that are at play here. Distrust, blame, disregard. She got it all. What is the place of the Weinstein case in all this? Is it just another man behaving badly or is there something unique about Weinstein and his role in, in in triggering the Me Too movement. Well, I mean, we should we should remember that it was the fall of 2017, and this blockbuster reporting um, by Megan Toohey and Jody Cantor and Ronan Farrow that kind of catapulted the hashtag Me Too and brought us into this current era. And so that alone, I think, makes Harvey Weinstein sort of the, the poster child for kind of Me Too villainy. Um, But then, of course, he was convicted in criminal court in Manhattan, and that itself is hugely significant. Most cases never make their way to criminal court. They're not reported to the police. When they are reported, police are unlikely to make an arrest. This is a case that made its way through, 
It's a case involving non-strangers. It's a case where there was contact between the victims and uh, Weinstein afterwards. And these are unusual facts to ever get to a jury. Yet this one did, and the jury convicted. And so I think that sends a powerful message, not because the the, the case is is ordinary. In some respects, it you know it has the hallmarks of of, of sort of typical sexual violence. But it's not an ordinary case. And I don't want to suggest that most survivors are going to get justice now, that this sort of criminal justice system transforms itself overnight. It doesn't. Nonetheless, this was a powerful message that was sent that even the most uh, protected abuser who had been uh, granted impunity for so many years, even that individual could be brought to justice. Uh Credibility is something that affects both men and women. Um, I'm curious as to your take on women who defend male behavior. Here I have a headline, a a female singer in Europe, Marta Sanchez, a friend of uh, Placido Domingo, is suggesting uh, he's another figure in in, in the Me Too movement, a very prominent figure. Uh, She's claiming that he isn't as guilty as some people suggest. Do women have, and particularly female friends of the accused, do they have, a, or relatives, do they have a particular responsibility? I also saw a headline as I was re- researching this piece about the wife of um, of um, uh, the, the French IMF uh, leader who was accused of rape and, and guilty of rape in New York City. She kept her mouth shut. Do women have a, I wouldn't say a particular responsibility, but what what would you say on that front in response to people like Marta Sanchez? Well, here's what I would say. Just as I don't point the finger at men and say that men are all are bad or that men are responding poorly, I, I don't glorify women in the book and suggest that women are immune from these same cultural and legal forces that lead us to discount the credibility of accusers and inflate the credibility of men accused. We are all, I think, drawn to this idea that abusers are monsters. And we think about the stranger rape paradigm. And out of that paradigm comes this horrific creature who you know jumps out in an alley with a mask and a knife. And the truth is that's not what most sexual assault looks like. It certainly isn't what sexual harassment looks like. And so we aren't confronting the reality, which is that these are men who we we are neighbors with. These are our coworkers. These are our friends. These can be our husbands. And until we sort of understand this reality, I think that we're going to see this um, continuing you know, way of protecting men by saying, well, he's a good guy or... I, um, you know, I, I never was abused by him. And that just, that just doesn't hold it up to the, to the light of logic. Uh, Deborah, I'm talking to you, as I said, from San Francisco on the edge of Silicon Valley. Uh, as always, uh, we're obsessed with technology out here and particularly tech scandals. The biggest scandal at the moment, or one of the biggest scandals is the Theranos one associated with Elizabeth Holmes, as I'm sure you know, her defense in the trial that's going on in a moment, uh, suggests that um, she's just a victim. And here I'm quoting from a headline from um, from the Daily Beast. Uh, she's just a victim of bad men. 
and that she is uh, claiming abuse by an ex-boyfriend who apparently controlled what she ate in the Theranos trial. Um, I wonder what you make of the Holmes defense. I have some friends who are criminal defense lawyers, and they were shocked with this strategy. Perhaps they don't have any other strategy. But at what point does uh, the example of the Holmes defense make a mockery of the work of people like yourself? Well, you know, I think, as you are suggesting, every defendant uh, has a right to an advocate and to zealous advocacy at trial, to a defense attorney, and they're going to work with the facts that they have. So, I, you know, whether it's Harvey Weinstein's lawyers, R. Kelly's lawyers, Elizabeth Holmes' lawyers, you know, they're, they're doing their job. If they do it within the bounds of sort of ethical constraints, then I say they're doing their job. We should only worry if the tactics that they're using turn out to be successful because they find a receptive audience, an audience that is is, is going to buy it. And I think it remains to be seen whether in this case uh, the, the defense is going to have the evidence to persuade anyone that as a matter of law, this is a defense. And it seems very unlikely to me that they're, they're going to get there. Uh, Deborah, later this week, i uh, thrilled that we're going to have uh, Pamela Paul on the show. She's the editor of the book review of the New York Times. She has a new book out on the internet, but she wrote a really important book in 2005 called Pornified, which critically saw the way in which our entire culture had been pornified, or by pornography, of course, and that accounts for some of the bad behavior, at least, particularly of young men. Do you buy the Paul thesis in terms of bad behavior of men? I know you uh, You also uh, quote uh, Rebecca Solnit a few times in the book. Uh, Solnit, one of the most influential uh, feminists these days. She writes a lot for Lit Hub. In her, men explain things to me. I think she argues that it, perhaps it's a more structural problem than just the prevalence of pornography. And I'm sort of, um, you know, drawn to both explanations to some extent. I, you know, I don't think we have to pick one or the other. Uh, I, I do believe that structural accounts can be really helpful in situating kind of an array of male entitlement. Um, and, you know, that can also help us to understand why we have the pornified culture that we do. Uh, one of the, the most sickening, uh, I think, examples of of, of these crimes is the Larry Nasser case of his um, of his abuse of, of hundreds of young girls. There's a scandal going on as well about how the, the so-called Nasser survivors um, were written about in Malcolm Gladwell's uh, latest book, Talking to Strangers. I remember reading that book and thinking, this is kind of odd. Do you think men, and I, I don't want to pick on Gladwell, he becomes, he's a very convenient punch bag for all sorts of things, but do you think men, particularly prominent writers like Gladwell, have a particular responsibility when writing about this stuff? I think that anyone who writes about this, you know, ought to be fair and be sensitive to the trauma of sexual abuse, sexual harassment, and sexual assault. I think for many women, maybe most women who've experienced some version of this, some 
on the spectrum, some form of sexual violation from the most severe to, let's say, the least severe, but still locating that somewhere on this continuum, I think it maybe is it can come easier uh, to, to women to sort of approach with sensitivity. Now, I want to be careful because, as we've already talked about, this isn't to give women a pass and to say that all women behave with sensitivity when they're approaching these subjects. But I, I would like to see, you know, whatever the gender of the person talking about this, that there's fairness and there's sensitivity. Uh, one of the, the more troubling aspects of your book, Deborah, and there's a lot of troubling stuff in it, not that I'm discouraging people from reading, I think we should all read it, um, is your argument that uh, when it comes to believing women, black and white women, uh, are, are treated differently here. We have a headline about uh, black women's experience in the movement against uh, campus sexual assault. And you have a, again, I didn't know about any of this stuff when I was reading it. You have this stuff about a woman called uh, Venkayla Haynes who experienced sexual a sexual crime on campus and was sort of, it, it's more complex in some ways with, and, and I use that word carefully with uh, with black women. What's going on there? Why is the experience of believing black women in our culture different from believing white women? Well, credibility is is a form of power, and it's meted out along lines of power. And so in our society, we have lots of different structural inequalities. Gender is one, race is one. We have socioeconomic inequality. We have inequalities based on ability. And I could go on and on and on down the line, right? Sexuality. And along each one of those axes, people with more power, relatively more power, are going to be more likely to be credited when they come forward and make an assertion. When they say something happened or that something was that it matters, if a person has more power, we are more likely to believe and to trust. And so when we think about Black women who are not only marginalized along lines of gender, but also along lines of race, it's essential that we look at each of those intersections, right? And that we think in a very expansive way about what it means to be a Black woman, not just a white woman um, who suffers more, but that there's a different kind of discounting that happens when someone has a history, um, when we have a history in this country of discriminating against Black women in a certain way. And in the book, I talk a lot about that legacy and about, in particular, the sexual assault of Black women and how it wasn't even recognized as a crime for much of our history. And, you know, that that's no longer true as a formal matter today, but some of those vestiges remain. And of course, the reverse is true as well when it comes to Black men and white men, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, th this is something where I think the idea of credibility discounting and credibility inflation has some traction even outside of the context where I'm writing about it here and the sexual assault or sexual harassment context. But even outside of that, where you see a power differential, you are very likely to see a credibility differential. There's an interesting debate going on now within the feminist community about what Michelle, the, the New York Times uh, columnist Michelle uh, Goldberg calls sex positive feminism. Do you think the increasing prominence 
um, visibility of these sexual crimes is turning young women off sex? Hmm. You know, that's an interesting question and an interesting way to frame it. I, I teach uh, about sex positive feminism. I teach a class called Feminist Jurisprudence, um, which is sort of thinking about the ways in which law shapes gender. And I, I noticed that a lot of my students come in very interested in talking about and learning about sexual violence and the legal response to it. And so it's, it's sort of hard to, to sort of pick that apart from uh, sex positivity. I think there are certainly ways to do it. And I think sex positive feminists um, can acknowledge that there's sexual violence and how important it is to redress that and still find a space for being positive about sexuality. But your, your insight, I think, is, is an important one, which is that when sexual violence becomes so overwhelming in our, in our lives, in our psyches, in our experiences, it is harder to have a conversation about what sex positivity looks like. So you think that sex positivity has become such a big issue that when someone describes themselves as a feminist, they need to make the caveat that they're a sex positive or a sex negative feminist? No, I don't, I don't think that. I mean, I, there are so many different kinds of feminisms and I think that even sex positive feminisms can come in different flavors. Um, it requires, as you've suggested, sort of a more complicated, nuanced conversation than a conversation that can easily be had in, in headlines or certainly in Twitter feeds. Um, Deborah, I don't want to make the book too dark, negative. I mean, you, you still have hope for fixing all this stuff. One of the things I liked about the book is you gave lots of nice references to my old friend Car Caroline Heldman. Um, She's been on the show a couple of times. And I, like you, I really admire what she's doing at, at Occidental. What does the work of people like, uh, of active, feminist activists like Caroline Heldman uh, teach us about trying to fix this problem? I think, I think Caroline's work and the work of so many other activists um, show us that... You, you might, sorry, uh, Deborah, you might explain what Caroline's doing at Occidental as well. Oh, I, I mean, Caroline has just been uh, at the at the forefront of efforts to um, improve the way campuses around the country, at Occidental, but around the country, respond to uh, to campus sexual assault. And she formed an amazing organization, or co-founded, I should say, an amazing organization. And she's been, I think, a an ally for so many students over the years, countless. I, I don't even know if we asked her how many she's helped over the years. And she really is someone who embodies the spirit of, uh, of fight and of commitment to, uh, to, to making change. And I do think that's where we can find some hope. I, I believe that uh, we are better now than we were a few years ago when we weren't talking as much about sexual abuse. These conversations are important. They're difficult, but they are essential. If we're going to improve how we respond to these allegations, we've got to have these stories in circulation. People have to feel like they can come forward and they're not going to be presumptively disbelieved. And that's where I think some of the, the work on the part of, of readers of the book or listeners to your show uh, you know, that's where the work comes in. We are all people who are likely to uh, to hear allegations come our way. We're going to be trusted with these allegations from our, our daughters, our friends, our, our co-workers. And it falls to us to respond in a way that's fair and just. Whenever I talk to Caroline, she always seems to be 
in or out of jail, demonstrating about one thing or another. Is this the kind of thing that should send young women to the ramparts, risking jail, fighting for justice? Is it is it the major issue, do you think, for women today in America? Oh, I mean, there are obviously so many issues. There are so many causes that are just and right and righteous. And, you know, far be it from me to, to prioritize. But I will say this. I, I think for... Um, you know, for women of all generations, um, it you know th this has gone on for a very long time. This being sexual abuse in one form or another, and my sense is that um, you know women, and you mentioned younger women, are are fed up with it and want uh, want a, a a better response. Want this to stop being as commonplace as it is. Just such a commonplace feature of being a woman, and people are ready for that to 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 stop. And so I'm excited to see where this conversation takes us in the coming years. And I, I hope that people who read the book get a sense of not pointing fingers and not you know, trying to make people feel badly, but trying to really harness a spirit of, of collaboration because we can all do better. Each one of us can do better. And when we, when we collectively do better, we're gonna see massive culture shifts. Well, I certainly hope so. Your new book, uh, Deborah uh, Turkheimer's new book, Credible, Why We Doubt Accusers and Protect Abusers, I think really is an essential read, both for, for young men and women. In fact, old men and old women as well. We're all responsible for trying to fix this thing. It's totally inexcusable and unacceptable. Uh, so, Deborah, congratulations. I don't know if that's the right word on the book. I think you did a great job. It, someone had to write it. You have. I think it's an important book. What else should people be reading in these strange times, in these supposedly dark times, although maybe things are getting brighter, both on the sexual crime front and on, on, mm. on the COVID front? You're, 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 you're in Illinois. Uh, what are you enjoying at the moment, reading or watching or listening to? Well, let's see. I just finished a, a memoir by Tarana Burke. Tarana Burke is the activist who founded the Me Too uh, movement in 2006. And she's been working ever since then to center uh, particularly Black survivors, Black women and Black girls. And mm -hmm. her memoir is, is really beautiful. It's inspiring. Um, it's, I think, a, a read that I can recommend I'll have to get uh, her on the show. Actually, I, I um, I've never, uh, I haven't read the book, but I think it'd be great to get her on the show. I recommend it. And then, you know, because we can't always read uh, fabulous nonfiction, I'm also reading Colson Whitehead's Harlem Shuffle, as you know, I think many, many people are, and that is everything that it's cracked up to be. And it is, it is a good diversion from some of the weightier issues of of the day. Um, it's of course a serious book, but it's it's a novel, and I'm recommending it. And then. Um, for, for TV watching, I'm I'm in the midst of um, only only murders in the building, which is a show with Selena Gomez and Steve Martin and Martin Short, and it is it is fun. You asked what I'm doing to sort of. Well, I'm pleased uh, you're having some yeah. fun because uh, <laughs> writing this book, credible, why we doubt accusers and protect abusers. I don't think probably was fun to write, but it's. As I said, it's an essential book, um, and I'm thrilled that somebody's written it. Someone certainly as articulate and erudite as you, as a professor of law, as a woman, as an activist. So, uh, Deborah Turkheimer, congratulations on Credible. I hope that a lot of people 
read it and keep well, keep writing, keep shouting, and we'll talk again in the not too distant future. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.